0: welcome everyone and thank you for joining us on colin for unruly with ryan and rob this is your co-host ryan knight and uh, rob actually started up school again so he's only going to be able to make it uh, on some nights but uh we he he should be back uh for the next show and uh i'm excited for for now to introduce our guest uh, andre uh, stackhouse andre is the campaign director for whole washington who are organizing a ballot initiative, uh, 1471, to bring uh, single-payer health care to Washington State. Andre, welcome to Unruly. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I, I, I'm excited to have you here. Um, one of the things uh, about ballot initiatives that I don't think uh, is discussed often enough is that uh, when both major parties are beholden to... They're corporate donors. The legislation that get, that ends up getting passed at, at both the state and federal level uh, is drafted by corporate lobbyists. So one way to work around this uh, and get uh, pro-worker legislation, at least at the state level. Uh, is to use ballot initiatives to get the public to vote on legislation directly uh, that the two parties uh, probably wouldn't pass or actually won't pass. Um, Andre, is this the idea behind uh, Whole Washington's push for ballot initiative uh, 1471, uh, which would bring uh, universal health care to Washington state? And how are the people in your state responding uh, to uh, the initiative so far and to your campaign?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And, you know, I think... I would add maybe just a little bit more uh, complexity to that model, which is that anytime basically anything gets passed, at least if you want any kind of sort of pro people legislation to get it through, the more organized uh, the people are around it, the more political pressure is able to be exerted on to the system. And so in many states, they don't have ballot initiatives, right? But they still need to organize themselves. Behind legislation or behind an issue in a state like Washington, where we have a ballot initiative um, that gives us a a sort of greater means to not just organize around it, but to petition our neighbors and our community and to put the legislation directly on the ballot. Um, And one of the things that one of the uh, one of the things about that is it demonstrates in public quite clearly that organization so it's sort of like you're out there and you're flexing showing look at how many people we have gathering signatures look at how many people want to sign this and that can be very motivating for a legislature to say okay you know we have to act because if we don't then we might lose control of this situation so it's a way to pressure a legislature as well as to put something on the ballot directly um, and I think that it's just an extension of citizen organizing. So instead of just organizing around an issue where we learn about it and we talk about it, maybe we call our legislators, we show that we are actually articulate enough on the policy to write our own version of it. And in this case, right, um, we've written a fantastic single-payer healthcare bill for Washington state that, um, you know, has not uh, had, you know, sort of industry and lobbyist voices Present during its crafting, right, and you can you can see that because our legislative writing meetings are open to the public, right, and so you can have input into that process. You can see it all the way through to the ballot without having to um, without having to uh, deal with those sorts of influences, um, and then it's a matter of public perception. Once it's on the ballot, right, they can't change what it says, um, so then we get to have an actual public discourse about what's in the policy itself. And you asked how, um, how it's being received out there. And this is, this is uh, very obviously the case to anyone gathering signatures, which is that, um, we don't need to convince people that they want this. Uh, people want this. The, the question is logistically, can we get enough people out there? Can we get enough signatures? You know, are we able, to mobilize the kind of effort needed in order to gather enough signatures to make it on the ballot. That's a huge challenge. But in terms of how much people want this, it is very, very clear. A lot of people just experienced two, I think very profound things, which is getting kicked off of their private health insurance plan when they lost their job during the pandemic, which just happens to be when they probably needed it the most. But then two, um, experiencing free healthcare through the form of uh, free vaccines. And so people have, on one hand, just had a very recent, very bad experience with our sort of status quo healthcare system, and then experienced what it would be like if you could just drop in and get the care that you needed. And so that's, I think, even more so than in previous efforts, you know, really, um, really made people open to this.
0: Hmm. How how many, I'm just curious, how many signatures uh, do you have to collect uh, to get single pair on the ballot in Washington state, and how are you going about, uh, getting those signatures? Like, what kind of strategies are you using to, to mobilize people to, to get enough signatures?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we need about 325,000 signatures. That's totally valid signatures from registered Washington voters that are accepted by the Secretary of State's office, and so they usually encourage a buffer, um, and so, uh, you know, they've encouraged 405,000 signatures. I think originally we had set a goal of ourselves for 400,000, which is a 23% buffer. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing about it is that uh, um, the rate of invalid signatures is unfortunately a little bit higher in the last couple of years. So one thing we learned from some of the citywide initiatives which are having their counts now is that because people are less housing stable, it means their voter registration might have been updated at some point in the process or otherwise doesn't match what they wrote down uh, on the signature sheet, and so those ones are at risk of being invalidated. So um, it's a huge number of signatures, and it's really, really hard to uh, ensure that they are you know, fully validated, even if it's theoretically somebody who should totally be able to sign. Um, but that means that in terms of you know, strategies out there, well, one is have voter registration sheets with you So that you can even somebody who's never voted before um, if you can convince them that this issue is worth uh, having on the ballot then you can just register them right there Um, the other has been through the growing of our coalition and so uh, we have grown our coalition considerably this year some of our recent endorsements include um, poor people's campaign the, the Washington poor people's campaign uh, we got Physicians for Social Responsibility. Um, we've got a bunch of the LDs. Uh, I can't remember them all off the top of my head right now. The Tacoma IWW, the Wobblies, uh, just endorsed us. Um, so we are seeing uh, increased engagement from a growing coalition across the state of Washington. Um, and then we just try to look ahead at where are people going to be. Um, and sometimes it's things like big events. So like the pride events this year were huge signature gathering days for us. Um, and then other times it's more mundane things. A lot of people in Washington State, especially if you live more out on the peninsula or in the islands, um, will take the ferry one or two times a day. And uh, so there are regular ferry lines that we have our volunteers work. Um, and they tend to be just waiting in line in their car anyway. Uh, I know all about mind. the
0: ferry lines my <laughs> my mother lives up on woodby island so i i oh, okay I, I grew and i grew up in- uh, uh, in Washington so I know all about the ferry lines that's actually a great place to find people because you're stuck in those long lines
1: yeah so it's um you know I think there's no real secret to it it's always uh a matter of mobilizing people, so the biggest thing for us is always just how many people can we get out there in the field um And then, as much as possible, we try to train people so that they become increasingly comfortable making that ask, gathering signatures, they know the rest of the process, where to get more sheets, where to drop off completed sheets, so that they can then themselves start to bring more people into the campaign. So if we can have all of our people gathering signatures, but also actively recruiting folks when they have these conversations to get that signature, try to encourage folks to come into the campaign, that's that way that... As you're out there, you're also growing the size of your organization, making it a bigger and bigger movement, um, and seeing the kind of growth that uh, that might get you over the finish line.
0: And how, how many signatures have you guys uh, collected as of now?
1: Yeah, well, I haven't looked in the last couple days, but I think we're probably about at 45,000. Um, we have till the end of the year, so it's a it's a ways to go. Um, but yeah, you know it's uh it's a lot of signatures it took a lot of like making of infrastructure a lot of training a lot of stuff to get us this far um and so it's entirely a matter of you know can we stay out there and can we keep growing it while we're out there
0: and you kind of alluded to it at the beginning of our our, our conversation but using ballot initiatives as a tool to kind of bypass the corruption of our corporate duopoly can work at the state level, but it's also important to address, I think its limitations, which is that since only I think it's around 24 states, I could be wrong, but I think it's approximately 24 states allow ballot initiatives. So this approach is not comprehensive enough, uh, f- right, for all 50 states to to pass uh, Medicare for all nationally. And it goes without saying, but getting single payer healthcare in one state Is not enough when our brothers and sisters in the remaining 49 states are still dying because of a lack of health care and from the greed of the insurance lobby and both corrupt parties who who do their bidding. So, does Whole Washington? uh, Do you guys also support the broader movement and fight for Medicare for All at the federal level?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know we've done a ton of events for it. We've led a couple of. you know, marches that were more focused on national Medicare for All. But then, uh, you know, you might have seen some imagery of uh, a light show that was done at the Capitol for one of the Medicare for All hearings where we projected, like, Medicare for All. We had a few different messages, but Medicare for All was definitely one of them. Uh, So that was something that we um, sent people to D.C. for and paid for that projector. Um, So lots of things like that. But I do want to say, you know, when we talk about Medicare for all, we're talking about a federal movement for single payer healthcare. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's older than say, uh, the latest versions in the Senate, in the house. Um, and it's, it's not just sort of like one bill or one politician or anything like that. And I I do sometimes encourage folks to think about how something like a state single payer campaign fits into that greater movement. So, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm actually a co-founder of a national group called Medicare for All Everywhere, and one thing that we're trying to do is unite campaigns like Whole Washington and New York Health Act and CalCare and uh, Maine. We sent some folks to Maine to gather signatures early in the year. Unite them into a coalition, uh, hopefully eventually a coalition that includes all 50 states and the territories, that creates the sort of national movement that's actually powerful enough to get this. And, you know, when you say that one state's not enough, obviously one state only gets the people in that state the health care that they need. But when we think about the Affordable Care Act, which was the last major federal health care reform, let's think about how many states that was passed in before it was made federal policy. And the answer is one state, uh, at least only one state that I'm aware of, which is the state of Massachusetts, right? So they created an individual mandate system that was called Romney Care, and then eventually That was picked up by the federal government and made into federal policy so um, you know i don't think it's that we need to do this in 50 states in order to get federal medicare for all i actually think that we might only need to do it in one state maybe even one or two states really the more states that do it the more i think it creates that pressure to happen federally Um, it makes it easier to do federally um, and it creates more pressure to do it federally But I honestly think that it might only take a couple of states before we are able to um, exert enough pressure on the federal Congress to pass federal uh, improved Medicare for all.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, Romney cares nothing to to brag about. I mean, that's part of the the problem, right? That's part of the reason that we we do need to organize for uh, national uh, Medicare for all. Um, But you're right. I mean, we need to build in order to to create the pressure to get there uh, we need to build a movement that's big enough uh to to pressure uh these two big parties who take a lot of big money from the insurance lobby which is really the only reason we don't have uh, a single-payer healthcare system in this country i mean you can go back when you study the, the history of, of, of the fight for single-payer health care, for Medicare for All, or for a universal health care system. I mean, it goes back so far. It goes back so far that even Nancy Pelosi, when she first ran for office, she supported single-payer health care, much like AOC and the squad, right, supported it and, and, and when they first got to Congress. But then what happens is, you know, as Pelosi stuck around D.C. a little bit longer and got more comfortable with the lobbyists, you know, a policy that is just a no-brainer that that everyone wants, that the seventy percent of the American people support. Uh, you know, even the party which claims to be to be the party of health care, which are the Democrats, they're they're actually the most deceitful because they're not the party of health care. They are the party of for-profit, predatory health insurance. You know, the ACA is not a universal health care system. It left some, I think, eighty-eight million people either underinsured or uninsured. Um, And so what what happens is, and and you know this just as well as I do, is that Democrats and Republicans, you know, they go and pass bills that are written by corporate lobbyists, and then they falsely claim afterwards that these bills are a win for the people, right? That's essentially all American politics is under our current uh, corrupt duopoly. We have two parties who exist to pass laws that funnel more wealth to corporations and, and the billionaire class. And we're seeing this play out right now uh, with this climate bill that Democrats just passed, which is actually a massive expansion of fossil fuel extraction, and it handcuffs renewable energy to fossil fuels. Yet Democrats are on TV right now, waging the propaganda campaign of the century by declaring that they just saved the planet when they actually just accelerated its destruction. And I bring this up because it's the same thing the Democrats did with uh, the Affordable Care Act, right? Or, or what I like to call the unaffordable care act. Um, you know, they called it a win for the people. And they went on TV, you know, Obama went on TV and, and, and Pelosi and Schumer, and and they basically tried to uh, tell the American people that it was this great thing when it was a giant uh, handout to the insurance companies and left, like I said, 88 million, um, either uninsured or underinsured. So, You know, of course, I love the idea of using ballot initiatives in order for the people to vote on legislation directly. Because it bypasses these two corrupt parties who have no intention of ever passing policies that help the people or planet. But I just think at the same time, I I think we have to be mindful of the fact that since ballot initiatives are only available in some 24 states, that this strategy is not comprehensive enough if we want to get to Medicare for All. And that we still need to be organizing on a national and even really a global scale to unite the masses against Uh, You know the corrupt capitalist and imperialist system. That's really the root cause of our misery suffering and exploitation and the reason we don't get uh, Popular policies that the people want like single-payer health care
1: Yeah, and I think what you're kind of getting at there is we need we need deeper political consciousness deeper class consciousness about the forces that are really, you know driving policy and um, and how that, you know, often diverges from the narrative that we're given. And I think that one right. thing that is really good about, you know, a ballot initiative campaign in in particular is that it allows you to get so hands on with it that you begin to learn that. I think a lot you begin to learn that really quickly. You know, we've gotten to work very directly on the policy, which means that um, we get to you know, we get to see the opposition to it more directly, right? And we get to hear a lot of the really terrible excuses and stuff where, um, you know, normally normally it wouldn't be so direct because we would just be given something and be told that it's a win. But in this case, we define what there is, you know, we define our own win and then we get to see, um, you know, we get to see all of the opposition to it. It kind of forces a lot of the opposition to, show its hand and so I think that um, you know raising people's expectations is a huge part of this um, a lot of people are still uh, becoming aware of universal healthcare as a concept um, you know a lot of the times when I say universal healthcare to people one of the first things they'll say is well I have healthcare right and you have to ask them to think about the fact well you have healthcare now but how stable is your situation really right what happens when there's a, a pandemic, right? Or does your nephew have health care, right? Um, or what happens
0: so, when you lose your job? You know, I mean, we're the exactly. only developed nation that attaches health care to someone's employment. You know, people, I have relatives in, in Great Britain, and they're actually more conservative. And uh, one of my political awakenings a few years ago was, was, you know, he, basically, my, my nephew said to me, he's like, do you know how crazy y'all are over there? If our, our basic, our conservative party in England wouldn't touch our national healthcare system. And if they did, they'd never get voted in, into office again. And, you, you know, and the party in, that calls themselves liberal and you know your democrat party is further to the right on health care than our you know conservative party and it really you know it really hits you that like you know and other you know uh, in other developed nations they have a universal health care system they have a system that it it doesn't matter you know if you're unemployed you still have health care <laughs> you know if you switch jobs if you want to uh, if you're in school you have health care if you want to start a business or do something on your own you know you're not contingent on 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 retaining this corporate job that you don't want to work in just to so you have health care. And so it's just it's such a foreign concept to people who don't live here that you would attach a uh, uh, health insurance to your job in the first place.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, what you're getting into there is like how universal health care, we need to really create a pro-freedom narrative around it. It's about the freedom of all of us to pursue right. the lives that we want to live. Um, and you know it's about increasing our power as citizens in this in this you know country that we're calling a democracy but when we have better health care we are more able to advocate for ourselves we are more able to put our foot down and say no i won't do that we are able to say i'm gonna try my own thing right um i don't like the way you're running this business maybe i'll start one and show you a better way to do it um and you know, I think the point I was, I was trying to make earlier, I'll make a little bit more clearly now, but, you know, ballot initiatives provide that very clear message to everyone who participates in them that it's not that somebody is going to come here and give this to us, but we, through our own organizing um, and our own power, have what we need to pass this and change our society for the better. And I think that that's just as true for any other kind of campaign, right? Whether it's one where you're pressuring legislators or one where you're, completely outside of that, and you're organizing in the street or you're doing die ins right? But all of those, what they have in common, you know, the grassroots organizing part of it is that we have the power to get this done. And in fact, we know that nobody else is going to do it for us, so we have to do it. And I think the thing that's so great about it is when we win this, we are all going to be so much more healthy. We're going to have more money in our pocket. And that means that we're going to be more powerful and we're going to rack up more wins on top of a win for, you know, universal healthcare. When we, when we show, you know, when we beat those overcoming odds, it will prove to us how powerful we are. And then we will immediately get a huge boost in our power. Um, that will mean that we can only take on even bigger challenges ahead.
0: Yeah, no, that's well said. And one thing that, uh, when I was preparing for this show that, that I kind of thought of, um, because uh, when, when we talk about ballot initiatives, really, it's the idea that it's putting power back into the people's hands. And instead of having these corporate politicians and these corporate lobbyists and these two political parties who are owned uh, and beholden to corporations and the billionaire class draft our legislation, it's the people uh, are drafting uh, our legislation. Uh, and, and the people you know, actually have an interest in and, and, and their family's health, right. And their, and, and, and their community's health. Uh, whereas when corporate lobbyists and these two corporate parties are drafting legislation, they have an interest in enriching, uh, their corporate donors and enriching the, the, the elites who put them into office. And so, um, I was fortunate enough to get a chance to uh, have Senator Mike Graval on this podcast in 2020, uh, before he passed away. Um, and up until the very end of his brilliant life, uh, former Senator Mike Graval was advocating for uh, what he calls direct democracy and specifically for a constitutional amendment uh, to create a legislature of the people where the people would write, pass, and vote on not just state laws, which is what a ballot initiative would do, but federal laws directly. And he actually wrote a book uh, about it uh, in the final years of his life. And in the book, he basically lays out the most compelling case I've, heard uh about every problem in our country uh, and that it stems from the fact that our laws are written by and for the elites and so naturally uh the best solution is for the people to have a direct hand in the legislative process and that's where he goes into and he lays out a clear uh a very clear uh case and how actually and a plan and a map on how if enough of us come together we can literally uh, draft and file a constitutional amendment to create a legislature of the people that would eventually make uh, Congress obsolete. Uh, now, uh, if Whole Washington was successful in bringing single-payer to Washington State, and like we've talked about earlier, considering the limitations of ballot initiatives not being available in all 50 states, uh, would you would your group consider looking into uh, Senator Mike Graval's idea of advocating for a constitutional amendment to establish a people 's legislature, which would then make it possible for the people to write and directly vote on laws like Medicare for all at the national level uh, and i only I, I bring this up because I think it's so important to you know right now when you're going up against these two parties they know exactly what they're doing they know you know when they're on tv when they each speak to their respective bases whether it's the democrats on cnn or or msnbc or if it's the republicans on fox news they go give their messages to keep their bases kind of on a leash and to keep them under control but when it's time to pass legislation they go behind closed doors and every single time they draft legislation Bipartisanship in D.C. means that the people are getting screwed over and the corporations and billionaires are getting richer. So, And they're always two steps ahead of us because they know exactly what they're doing. And so I just think you know, we talk about organizing on a national level and bringing the people together under class consciousness – but someone like Mike Graval, he had a he had an idea and something that we could advocate for that would literally make these two parties obsolete. And and I, I encourage everyone. It's the book is about 150 pages. It's called uh, "The Failure of Representative Government and the Solution," uh, which is a which is what he goes into is a legislature uh, of the people. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Andre? And is that something that you know after you guys? could get a single payer in washington if that's something you would be into um, advocating for on the national level
1: yeah you know here's what i'll say i, I think whole washington 100 percent supports a constitutional amendment to get medicare for all you know and i don't speak for whole washington but that's something i feel very confident in saying um when it comes to some of these you know democracy reforms i don't think that that's Uh, territory that whole Washington itself has waded into too much, but Mm. I can share my personal thoughts on it, which is that I am of the strong belief that the United States is a very weak democracy. If we can consider it democracy. And I
0: I call it an oligarchy, but go ahead. Yeah. I, I just, I just think that when you have, we do elect our politicians and they're supposed to represent us. But when you have two parties who are funded by corporations and billionaires, uh, they're not representing us they're representing right. their, their donors right so and that to me is an oligarchy when, when you have uh you know wealthy elites buying elections and buying your politicians you're never going to get legislation that, that's written for the people you're going to get legislation that's written for the people that that that, that are buying our political parties
1: but so, go ahead yeah and and you know the fact that we only have two parties that have won you know anytime in living memory Right is a sign of a very weak democracy, and so we need we need serious democracy reform if we're going to create a more representative democracy that actually represents people. And I, I'm deeply interested in those things. You know, I'm mm-hmm. uh, I've I've made some contributions to bringing ranked choice voting to Washington State. Um, you know, again, I know that's state level, but you know, when you're talking about it at this federal level, I'm reminded of the the system that they have in Switzerland, which, you know, I've never lived in Switzerland or anything like that, but when I look at the way that they pass federal legislation through, um, through referenda, the way that they have, um, much more citizen participation in some of their legislative bodies, I look at that and go, that looks like a really good system. It decentralizes power more. Um, and, and I think that it is a lot more responsive to what their people actually want. Um, and so, you know, I would support a number of democracy reforms uh, at federal level. Um, And I think that I would be very interested in bringing that sort of process to the federal government, because I think that it's worked really well in Washington state. Um, That doesn't mean that a bad initiative has never been passed. It doesn't mean that the wealthy don't have an advantage over grassroots campaigns in ballot initiatives. But I still think that when you look at the sort of uh, the, the walls that you hit in the legislative process that you are able to just, you know, it's not easy, but if you can organize enough people, then you can push through it. And they give you an actual, you know, like if we don't get on the ballot, we know it's because we didn't get enough signatures, you know? So it's like, we, we can build off of that. Right. But the, the legislative process is so complex by design. It is so exclusive in so many ways. It has these crazy committee processes, right? So it's really hard to actually track how to get anything through any legislature. Right, and and it th- but it's important to point over- out that's
0: intentional. They, they create these hoops because they want to make it sound like it's this complicated thing. For me, I'd rather have everyday people like yourself and, and groups that... that- that are made up of people writing legislation than two political parties who are owned by corporations and billionaires writing legislation, right? So, you know, for me, there's nothing, there's nothing more that's going to decentralize power and put power in the hands of the people than if the people are actually writing the laws. And that actually, that is what democracy is. Democracy is a, is a government that is of, by, and for the people right it's the people writing the laws uh, what we have again it, for me it's it's it, it's an oligarchy it's a government of by and for the ruling class and for uh the corporations who own our political parties so um but this is great let's let's get to our first caller brady uh brady go ahead and unmute yourself and, and feel free to ask andre a, a question or or bring up uh any points you'd like
2: the yeah, to th- thank you guys first of all for being so solutions oriented and actually kind of focusing on real things we can do to make progress This is a topic I've been super interested in because I, I, I subscribe to the philosophy that, um, no amount of political revolution is really going to set us free. Um, that I think what we require is like a psychedelic Renaissance. And years ago, you'll remember what people would say, you know, we, we try to, uh, get psychedelics legalized and they'd say, Oh, nonsense. It's never going to happen. Well, We made it happen in Colorado, California, Washington, uh, Thailand, just legalized mushrooms along with cannabis. Uh, I think, um, Canada legalized mushrooms as well. So we're making it happen and the way that we're making it happen is through ballot access. And this is exactly what I've said. I mean, this is such a brilliant point you make that we need civilians and regular people writing legislation. And I think this is absolutely one of the most important rights we need to be flexing. Um, so thank you so much for bringing it up. Um, my question would be, in a nutshell, how does someone like me make a ballot access um, point happen on a ballot? How do you get, how do you get, um, I'm sorry, like, uh, what is it, a ballot initiative put on the ballot?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's remarkably, um, it's, it's a bit underwhelming, really. Uh, your Secretary of State, probably has on their website some way to do it that's if you live in a state with ballot initiatives so ballotpedia has a great map that kind of shows you where you have the ability to do that um i do think that in most states if you don't have ballot initiatives it is unfortunately the sort of thing you will probably need a constitutional amendment to change but um i don't believe any states had ballot initiatives when when they first started you know uh, i can't speak for every state but I know that there was sort of a period of reform in which many states um, began to add ballot initiatives as an option, and in fact, the history there is quite interesting. Um, it was in a period of sort of populist uh, uh, displeasure with the political system, and so that's when, for instance, they began to elect senators, um, and that did take a constitutional amendment to the federal constitution. Um, so anyway, if you live in a state with ballot initiative, you basically need the language, uh, which is not easy to write. You know, I recommend that if you're going to try to actually create something worth passing, that you seek input from uh, from your community um, and people who care about these policies uh, and have any expertise they can bring to the table. And um, are not in influenced
0: by big money, of course. And not influenced by big yes. money. That's uh, for bio- me number one. I mean, it sounds so simple, but when every law that's written is influenced by big money, and then you have one party that pretends to be on our side go on TV and say, oh, this is great for the planet, and you come to find out, like, if you just... This is my thing. Are people actually reading the bills? Because all you have to do, this new bill that the Democrats put out, all you have to do is read, like, go go to, like, the fifth page, and you see that it is a massive expansion of the fossil fuel industry. They are literally giving the big oil companies... 600 million acres of public land and offshore water for the big oil companies to drill on over the next 10 years. And it's all contingent, and they're handcuffing renewable energy to the the issuing of this 600 million acres for for the big oil companies to drill on. So the entire bill is a bait and switch. It's not even crumbs. It's not even like, oh, this is a step in the right direction. It is literally uh, an acceleration of Of the crisis that we're already in and it's going to do nothing to 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 protect or save this planet uh or or, and the people who are the most marginalized in the communities who are going to bear the brunt uh, of the climate crisis so that's just what what it's like are the liberals that that defend biden no matter what and vote blue no matter who are they reading these bills are they actually reading or are they basing their entire political um belief set uh, on you know the speeches that get made on c n n or when they 're in front of the camera when they 're actually just pandering for people 's votes and saying whatever it 's going to take uh, to get elected and get power again, so then they can go and write more laws for their corporate donors so it 's a very dangerous game they 're playing in washington and and I think for me, the Republicans are so obviously corrupt and they don 't try to like pretend like they 're on our side at least they 've never tried to pretend like they care about the issues I care about when it comes to health care and living wages and um you know uh, ranked choice voting and and actually living in a multi-party democracy but it's the democrats who kind of poses our ally and then then write bills like this latest one where they just stab us in the back so i would encourage everyone who's listening and i don't care if you vote democrat that's your choice you can vote for whoever you want i'm not like one of those like that's the whole point of democracy you should like i should get to vote for my third party and not get shamed you know from 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 hillary apologists for doing it but my point is read the bills take initiative don't Trust people that, that that just because they say nice words on TV that they're actually legislating for you. Because I would tell you that neither party is legislating for you and the Democrats are lying to you about what they're legislating just to get your vote. Sorry, I had to go there, but it just the propaganda over the last two weeks, I I haven't done a show in two weeks because I was sick last week, and so I haven't kind of got to respond to what I've been seeing come out of the White House, come out of Joe Biden, come out of MSNBC, and the propaganda from the Democrats right now is, is like just as bad as Trump's. I mean, it's blatant lies, calling it the biggest climate bill in history when it literally is an expansion of the fossil fuel industry and a gift to the fossil fuel industry, which is why Joe Manchin loves it, and which is why the CEO of Exxon is celebrating this bill and i just wish that liberals who, who try to claim moral superiority and like they're these great virtuous people would understand this stuff and understand that when the ceo of ceo of exxon is celebrating a, a bill it's not a climate bill it's a fossil fuel bill
3: yeah
1: i appreciate i mean and and it is sorry um, i just i know. was at
0: my wits end the last two weeks just the gaslighting is next level and it just it drives me absolutely bonkers
1: yeah so, so check for lobbyists and and they can be sneaky. That's the other thing about them is um you know make sure that when you are getting this kind of information that you're sort of giving it a sniff test and and seeing if that kind of messaging is coming from anywhere because a lot of the times if you pay close attention, you'll find that certain kinds of certain kinds of things that get advocated for in policy you know have kind of dark origin so So, you know, you're stepping into um, challenging territory when you decide to start trying to actually write, write this stuff. And I'll just add, you know, um, I think as much as possible, you know, we should try to write these laws to be readable, too. Right. So not just written by by citizens, but like written in human language that that, you know, fairly reasonable person could read and understand. Um, I hope that we're hitting that mark as much as we can with whole Washington. But you can read the initiative language on our website. And I I actually really encourage people to do it. It's the best version of the initiative that we've ever filed. And I think that um, if other states are looking to improve single-payer legislation that they have or create single-payer legislation, it would be a really good place to start. Um, But once you have the the initiative language, it's usually a relatively modest filing fee. I mean, um, I don't think I paid more than 50 bucks to file it. Um, and, and, you know, I obviously, um, you know, was able to file that with whole Washington, uh, but it can be a little more expensive. I was talking to somebody from California who was hoping to take some of this stuff to the ballot soon, and they were looking at costs, um, which could get up into a couple thousand dollars, but that was, I think it was like $50 to file it. And then if you start to advance it further, they do things like have um, the state, like departments, start to vet it and give you like a fiscal analysis and stuff like that. So that starts to cost a little bit more. Um, but even then, if you just wanted to collect signatures, it would probably be relatively low startup cost. Um, and then you would uh, print the petition sheets. In our case, we have to get them printed from basically just one print shop because it's the only union print shop in Washington state that can print on sheets of paper that big. But once you have the sheets, you're just out there gathering signatures and uh, there might be different laws in your state. Like in Maine, you have to get the signature sheets notarized and signature gatherers notarized in Washington. We're a little bit more loosey goosey about it. So, um, you know, we can just hand somebody a sheet and they can start gathering signatures. But uh, I really recommend if it, if it's interesting to you that you take the first steps of, trying to write the policy and file it. And, you know, in your first try, who knows? Maybe you barely get any signatures, right? But you'll be connecting with people that believe in this, right? And you'll be learning the process. You'll be getting, you know, to know the Secretary of State because you'll call them up and ask ask for questions, you know. <laughs> um, and then you'll be in a better position, right? So it's a matter of growth. Uh, can you build... A coalition and a movement around the issue that you're organizing around the filing part is easy you know it's getting it all the way through that's really hard but you're not going to get there unless you take those first steps so I really encourage you to do so and by the way if you want help on any of that uh, just go ahead and get in touch with me you can message me on Twitter my Twitter handle is Captain Stack um, I would love to talk to anyone out there who wants to run a ballot initiative especially on health care any state if your state doesn't have ballot initiatives, I'd love to talk to you about changing that. So feel free to get in touch. Captain Stack on Twitter.
2: I'm gonna get in touch with you, Andre. I, I absolutely need your help. Um, one of the things I plan on doing is legalizing natural, you know, plant medicines this is a huge thing. It's one of the, the best health decisions I've ever made for myself, you know. It's increased my health in so many subtle ways I can't even begin to touch on right now. Another healthcare thing I'm interested in exploring is both old and novel, uh, medical techniques that are simply not being utilized because they do not create profit for the pharmaceutical industry or the medical industry. There are a lot of very cheap medications that are safe and effective that are simply not prescribed because there's a more expensive, fancier, newer version that makes more profit. And, um, I mean, plant medicine is a perfect example of that. You know, you look at Uh, the effectiveness of mushrooms versus the cornucopia of psychotropic pharmaceuticals like Klonopin, for example, is a perfect example. It took down Jordan Peterson. You know what I mean? Like if Jordan Peterson can't handle Klonopin, no one can. (laughs) Or almost no one. I'll say almost no one, you know. Um, Or at least in the, in the way that we prescribe it now is just incredibly destructive. And um, I've lost a lot of really good friends to Klonopin. Um, it's a very frightening drug to see what it does to people's minds is absolutely crazy. I had an experience today with a friend on Klonopin, actually, that I'm kind of like still a bit traumatized from. Um, this was like the most successful girl in high school. This girl was primed for success, you know. Um, there was nothing stopping this girl, and I don't know what happened. She had a divorce, and then started using Klonopin, and she's completely lost touch with reality now. Like barely able to make a cohesive sentence.
1: So, yeah, and you know but, the the really big version of that that I'm you know a little more familiar with. But if you look into the sort of causes of the opioid epidemic, I mean you're you're looking at the consequences of a profit-driven healthcare system with very mm-hmm. little oversight or regulation and right. um and and yeah. we know for a fact that there were many many less harmful ways to treat pain um yeah. and that uh, the costs of opioids are just very high on on many people and we're we're still i mean so many people are still we're, we're still in the opioid epidemic right that's that's yeah. sort of the fact of it and yeah, so and, we, and if you want to
0: know how unjust our system is the, the the drug dealers at Big Pharma who are responsible for the opioid epidemic. How many of them are behind bars? None, zero. So when you really start to understand the problems in our society that are plaguing our society, you see how connected they all are. That because uh, powerful corporations and because Big Pharma owns both parties, and oh, they get legislation that is favorable, and they get regulation that is favorable, and they and they don't get any accountability for, for the drugs that they create that are addictive and that are, that are literally causing more deaths in many cases than, than, than you know, illegal substances. So um, these problems are absolutely connected and absolutely the result of having a, a government that is owned by the very uh, corrupt corporations who are a, a blight on our society. So I, I, I love that you guys are going to connect and talk more uh, about this because, again, these problems are all connected.
2: Yeah. And I want to offer one more positive example of something that can come from this before I take my dog out. And that's transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is where we take magnetic waves and pulse them at certain areas of the brain to stimulate uh, electrical activity in damaged areas of the brain. And this has been used to get people off of all kinds of drugs uh, to be able to help people mitigate their pain. Um, and it's, I mean, you could set this up relatively cheap. I mean, this is cheap technology to use, you're just generating a magnetic pulse, and focusing different kinds of waves at different parts of the brain. So you do need a specialist, but um, I would love to see this technology be made available in free clinics all over the country, where anyone who's having any kind of mental health issue, any learning issue, uh, it, it mitigates autism. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, it's going up 15% in the last like 20 years. Um, and this, uh, as, as actually, I've seen it work really well for autism and, uh, personal example, my, my cousin's wife had postpartum depression. She was on three different kinds of psychotropics trying to balance everything out. You know, she was, she was destined for, you know, the psychotropic K that everyone's going down. So I got to take my dog out. But, um, well, thank you able for, for calling in and I hope decisions. you connect with Andre.
0: And again, like yeah. I said earlier, uh, anyone who is not funded by Big Pharma or funded by the military industrial complex or funded by Wall Street, you're going to write much better legislation uh, than our politicians who are funded by all those uh, corrupt special interests. So, you know, again, that's one of the, the they try to make writing policy complex. They try to make all these hurdles because that's part of how they 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 have corrupted the system and, and how they have gamed the system to, to benefit the few at, at the expense of the many. So, you know, whether it's a ballot initiative or whether it's doing something like uh, Senator Mike Graval was advocating for before he died, where he was advocating for a constitutional amendment so that we could create a people's legislature. And so the people in our communities were writing the laws and not these corrupt politicians who are in bed with the corporations and billionaires who are – uh, preventing us from truly being free and, and truly uh, uh, being the liberated society that we deserve to be uh, So thank you again for, for calling in and uh, let's kick our next caller Amanda And then we will wrap things up because we're almost nearing the hour mark Amanda. Go ahead. Oh Amanda if you just unmute yourself, and you can ask uh, Andre a question or or, or raise a, a topic If you click that little red uh, icon on the bottom uh, right, it should unmute yourself.
3: Hello, can you hear me?
0: Ah, we can hear you.
3: Okay, sorry. There's my my computer was trying to tell me it knew better than I did. Um, hi. Thank you for for having Andre on the show. Um, I sorry I missed the very beginning of it. Um, so you're so the initiative in Washington, has it already been passed for the health care? I mean, can you just, your, your brief? Cause I'm very interested in, in this. I'm concerned after the Dobbs decision that, that we don't seem to have a very coherent um, approach and they're just going to toss it back to the states if it's not specifically in the Constitution. So I'm just curious how, if you see a change in the landscape since some of the recent, more recent Supreme Court rulings. I know that's a giant question, but mm-hmm. well, curious experience.
1: So first is that our we're currently gathering initi- uh, signatures to get this initiative on next year's ballot, and then we'll have to win in order for it to become law. So we're still a ways off. Um, when it comes to sort of the Supreme Court and kicking it back to states and all of that, I mean, we need federal Medicare for all. That's, that's really where we need to get in order to make sure that everybody in this country has the health care they need. And unfortunately, um, you know, I think that some of the recent precedent that's being set by the Supreme Court does show that that can be a bit fragile. The, the good news, if we can call it good news, is that Because we don't have Medicare for all federally, what it means is that there's nothing for them to take away from us, uh, per se, at least they can't take Medicare for all away that we don't have. So out here in Washington, for instance, right, like there's no reason for us to believe that they would change some sort of thing where they're kicking it back to the states, but then that would like take away our single payer system if we were to be so fortunate to pass it so in what they would have to do would be i think considerably more provocative which would be they would have to like reinterpret the constitution to say that actually universal health care is unconstitutional and i don't really know how they could do that that would be a dramatic reinterpretation i would say that if you look at the constitution as written right it's a fairly reasonable interpretation to say well if it's not covered by the federal government, then that kicks it to the states, right? And so in that sense, what we're saying is we don't have universal health care federally, and thus it becomes the the duty of our state government to step in and provide that to its people. Um, so we believe that it's, it's not just like an option that we have at state level, but we actually think that it is incumbent on our state government to do it. They have to do it because because It's their duty to fulfill rights that aren't being fulfilled by our federal government. Now, I think that it would be considerably more stable in the long run if we were to pass some sort of constitutional amendment that that clearly, as clear as, you know, the First Amendment does for speech, uh, guarantees health care as a right for, um, you know, uh, for all people. And so in that sense, like, I think that, the unfortunate reality is as as Ryan has articulated is we, we live in a system that is not really on our side in a lot of cases. And, um, and so that means that we're in a, we're in a very challenging position and that's why this fight has been multi-decade, you know? Um, and, and that's super unfortunate. I just try to let that be something that motivates me. Right. And say that, This is a this is a huge hill to climb, but there but we just have to climb it. We have to we have to make these changes a reality. And one thing that I think is a cause for a bit of hope, right, is that um, we can have a sort of fickle people who can't, you know, who, who often aren't great at organizing, who often aren't great at seeing the ways in which they're getting screwed by the system. But I think that once we have Healthcare for everyone, it changes that dynamic, right? And so if a court starts to say, hey, guess what? This is unconstitutional, the response becomes, okay, well, take it from me, right? And I think that when people have that presented to them, they're trying to take your health care. That's the sort of thing that mobilizes them into saying, we're not going to let that happen, and I don't care that you wear a fancy robe um, and that you have, you know, a, a kind of high-minded legal argument for it. The reality is I'm not going to let you take my health care. And so I think that that sort of um, reframing of we have the health care and we now have the strong feeling that we deserve this health care. We think it is a right. We think that's what the documents say. Um, Then I think we're in a much better position to to maintain and even expand our health care further. As Ryan said, you know, at a certain point right we we should not just be talking about healthcare for ourselves we should talk about can we build a healthcare system so great that we create a surplus of doctors that we can send out into the world and increase public health for for all people you know um international uh international medical um expeditions or whatever i can't remember there's a better term for it than that um so We're, we're a very long way from where we want to be, right? We believe that healthcare is a right of all people on this planet, and there are so many people who don't have it right now. So it's, it's, you know, can we look at where we are and not see just despair, but can we see steps that we can take, you know, a, a path forward that gets us, that gets us where we're going, you know, and where we want to be and into the society that we all deserve to live in?
0: Absolutely. And I think just to add on, I think you covered it, but I think I would just add on to you could very you could very well make the case that the Constitution uh, already supports and backs up uh, making health care a human right. Because in the Constitution, it says that we are all entitled to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And you cannot have you can't have life, liberty or the pursuit of happiness uh, without health care. Uh, and especially when it comes to a woman's decision to, to make uh, decisions about her own body and make her own reproductive choices, that goes hand in hand with, with making healthcare a human right and, and guaranteeing that for everyone. Uh, I, I think those fights are connected. Uh, and so, um, again, but right now we have a system where you know the 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 democrats have actually played with our rights and instead of actually fighting for them they dangle them in front of us they say things like well you got to vote for us because democracy is on the ballot and if you want the right to choose and if you want you know health care then then you've got to show up and vote for us but they use those things to fundraise off of and they use those things to scare us uh, and say well no if you don't vote then the republicans are going to take them all away but The Democrats, if they really believed in democracy and they believed in healthcare as a human right and they believed in a woman's right to choose, they wouldn't use these things as fundraising tools and they wouldn't use these things to threaten us with and scare us with. They would be fighting for these rights. And And the truth is, if anyone is capable of being honest with themselves, you cannot say that the Democratic Party is actually fighting for our rights they use uh, they use these rights to fundraise off of and to and to get power and then when they're in power they they'll they'll use things like oh we can't because of the parliamentarian or you know there's always an excuse or oh no sorry like this is the best we could do because of Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema you know, and, and in four years from now, they'll, they'll have two. If, if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are no longer in the Senate, they will come up with two more villains that they will use uh, on why they can't actually uh, fight for human rights and, and fight for the dignity and justice that we all deserve. Because the truth is, it's very uncomfortable for people to hear. But the Democrats uh, represent the same people that the Republicans do, and that is uh, the billionaire class, and that is big business, and, and, and these giant corporations, and, and the military-industrial complex. Uh, and so that is what you get from our current government. It is a government that, it, that, is, that is not a democracy. It is an oligarchy. So if we're going to fight back against that, it's time to start thinking outside the box. It's time to start being one step ahead, understanding what the corruption is, understanding that they're drafting laws that are rigged against the people and for their corporate donors. And so let's let's channel Senator Mike Gravel, who was an elected senator who helped take down Nixon. And he literally in the last six months of this man's life he wrote a roadmap on how we can file a constitutional amendment to create a legislature of the people so it's the people who get to write uh, and pass uh, and vote on our laws, and not these two corrupt parties. I I encourage everyone to go pick up his book. You can get it wherever you buy books. Uh, it's called The Failure, Failure of Representative Government and the Solution. And I think when you start fighting for big ideas, like a constitutional amendment to give the people the power to pass laws— That's when you really scare these two corporate parties, because when you're just playing their game, oh, vote for the lesser of two evils. Oh, no, you just got to vote for us because they're so bad. That just gives the corrupt Democrats more power and more reason not to fight for these rights and fight for us. Why the hell would they fight for us? When all they get, to, when every election season they just threaten us and they just say, and they, they use fear mongering to turn people out to vote. They say, if you don't vote for us, a democracy that doesn't exist will die. So you got to vote for us. They've been using that line my entire life: vote or die. Um, that was the first election I voted in. Celebrities get in, get out on the, the celebrities love the Democrats and the Democrats love celebrities. They were wearing vote or die T-shirts. But the truth is, like, we don't have a democracy in this country. And if we want a democracy, then we have to fight for it. And we have to stop buying these narratives. Because what it does is it just gives the corporations more power. It gives the billionaires more power. And it gives the Democrats more excuses to not actually roll up their sleeves and be the party that they say they are. And that is why I made the difficult decision to leave the party in 2020 and why I believe we need to do things like – what whole washington is doing in washington on on a on a small scale uh, on a ballot initiative to fight for single-payer and then on the big scale fight for a constitutional amendment so that we can pass medicare for all so that the people can uh protect the woman's right to choose so that we can pass a living wage and write off student loan debt and these things that might sound far-fetched but i guarantee if you just read senator graval's book he lays it out so clearly how the people how we can take our power back from this corrupt system and really build a democracy for the first time in this country so uh, I, I, I you know I, I don't think that we realize when you play the game the way the Democrats and Republicans want you to play it you're just propping up the rigged system but when you start thinking outside the box when you start um, you know doing things like ballot initiatives fighting for ranked choice voting voting for third parties who are not funded by corporations like the Green Party uh, you know advocating for ranked choice voting fighting for a constitutional amendment to build a legislature – uh, of the people, that's when you're gonna st- we're gonna start to get change in this country. Organizing in the streets, building class consciousness, organizing with your neighbors—that's the stuff that's gonna scare the duopoly. But all of this, like everything you see on CNN and MSNBC, is just giving more power to to the oligarchy, to to the rich, to the corporations, and it's doing nothing for the majority of the people in this country. And so we got to start thinking differently and and fighting differently if we ever do want to change things. Uh, or it's just gonna be more. Are the same and the, the the failed status quo like we're getting from the democrats right now so um again uh thank you guys and andre thank you so much for uh taking the time to talk with us tonight uh, about whole washington about ballot initiatives and uh where can people who are listening uh how can they learn more about whole washington and the ballot initiative that you are advocating for where can they go to learn more or to help out your efforts
1: yeah, so wholewashington.org is a wealth of information. Um, there's an FAQ on there that really has most of the questions that I get day to day. And then I would really encourage folks to follow us on Twitter. That's at Whole Washington. We post some pretty good stuff on there. Um, and, yeah, you know, I would say that the best way to learn, though, really, is to decide that you want to take that first step and actually not just be on the sidelines, but that you want to be a part of it. And so if you go to wholewashington.org slash volunteer, uh, it'll happen to you real quickly. Um, we meet, uh, we meet weekly on Mondays. You don't have to be, um, in Washington state. You know, if you are out of Washington but you want to support us, uh, we have lots of things that we can, we can do through more of a virtual way rather than being part of the ground game. And you'll learn all about the policy. You'll learn about the tax code. You'll learn about the initiative process, um, and it does make it a lot less scary when you realize, oh, it's not like super geniuses who go to a special academy where they learn all the greatest things about policy. Uh, Most legislators, most lobbyists are not any smarter than us. Um, They are working under a different set of incentives, uh, but we have an incredible amount of, of knowledge and skill in our sort of collective power as citizens. We get to support each other and lean on each other in the ways in which you know we have something unique to bring to the table, but then other people have something else unique to bring to the table. So we need people of all skills. We need people all over the country and all over Washington State, and I really, really encourage you to get involved. And uh, just to, uh, I guess, (laughs) add a little bit to to what Ryan was saying earlier, I just, um, you know, for me, there was a very profound change because I worked very hard on both Bernie Sanders' campaigns, and I... Got involved with whole Washington between them, but one of the main thoughts that I had with me at that time was, I want to work, I want to work um, in my, you know, locally instead of nationally, and I want to work on an issue instead of a candidate. And I think that when you start to work on an issue first, it doesn't mean that you completely lose interest in electoral politics or candidates. You still care, right? And you still pressure them to that. But what it means is. You put the issue first, and that means that you get to say, you know what, personality, we can talk about personality, but the issue matters more, right? We can talk about this one person later, but this issue matters more. And I was just so tired of talking about personalities, right? Is Bernie Sanders a good guy? I don't care if he's a good guy, I care about the policies, you know? So keep your eye on the ball, um, and remember. Remember to flex your own power, to build your own power. Don't ask for it from somebody else. Don't ask for it from a legislator. Say, I have the policy. I, I'm inviting you to my meeting. Um, and, and that is what gets them to start to treat you a little bit differently, is when they know you have power and you know that you have power. So um, find your power and, and take those first steps. Get out there and uh, join a campaign.
0: Andre, very well said. Thank you so much uh, for coming on tonight. And thank you, you guys for listening. Uh, and next week, we are going to be interviewing an independent who is running in Maine uh, for Congress. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, uh, that episode next week. And I hope everyone has a safe and healthy weekend. And we'll catch you next week with an all-new episode of Unruly. Have a great weekend, everyone. And bye, Andre.
3: Solidarity.